Welcome to the Subpodcast, the podcast that can help you grow greener thumbs. Subpod designed a revolutionary underground composting system, and we know a thing or two about gardening. My name's Noah. I'm Subpod's writer, and I'm a bit of a worm enthusiast. And I'm Peter. I'm a compost nerd with a background in environmental science. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ginger. It's a real pleasure to have you here. And pleasure is all mine. Thank you. I wanted to start this off with Chasing Felicity because I finished the book last night and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'll be honest with you. I thought because the protagonist was a, a young girl that it was for teenagers, I wasn't going to, but I, I really did enjoy it. <laughs> uh, I, I was curious to know what was your intention behind writing the trilogy Chasing Felicity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I never considered myself a writer. I enjoyed writing when I was young, and I switched schools a couple of times growing up. And I remember switching to seventh grade and getting, I think it was an A minus or a B plus on a paper, which in my perfectionist world was not acceptable. And I went up to the teacher and I said, How can I make this better? And she said, Well, maybe writing's not your thing. And from that moment, I put a label on myself because I had really gotten into advanced science and math and it was very easy for me. I just said to myself, you know what? You're not a writer. And I went on the rest of my life really thinking I wasn't a writer. But when I got into journalism later after getting my scientific degree, I obviously had to write and I learned how to write at least for television. And so I know I was writing the whole time. I just still would tell people, oh, yeah, I'm not a writer. So when I went to look, I was pregnant with my now almost five-year-old, and I was looking for baby books about the weather. And there were really very few that were well done, that were accurate. And I was like, you know what? I have this platform now. I have this kind of ability to create a legacy of being a science writer, I should do it. And so I went to the publisher thinking, I can write a book for a baby, 60 words, you know, whatever that is. And I gave them the idea of this character that I would base on the storm chases that I've done in my life. So two decades of being in almost every tornado, hurricane, wildfire Mm -hmm. around the world. And I would put it in a young girl. And the publisher said, we love the idea. It's just not a baby book. That is a chapter book. And I was like, you know what? I'm not a writer. So, and they were like, well, okay, why don't you try? And then we'll tell you if you're a writer or not. And I went and wrote a couple of chapters. I came back. They said, that's great. Write a trilogy. And I was like, what? (laughs) So the intention wasn't to write a chapter book. And, and honestly, while I was explaining to them what I would base the three books on, I started talking about my own life. And before I even started the trilogy, I actually finished my, what I guess you call a memoir, which is now a New York Times bestseller. It keeps going. It's one of the most surprising parts of my entire life. And that's called Natural Disaster. I cover them. I am one. So born of this whole idea of writing a baby book, I then wrote a memoir about depression and and running around the United States and the world uh, doing all these adventures. So what a wild ride it's been. But when Chasing Helicity really started going, my intention was to leave a legacy for young girls and boys who may be interested in science, who may be not, to just be learning without learning, you know, like Mm -hmm. to go along. And there's one part of this world that I understand better than others, and that's the atmosphere. It's a puzzle. Mm -hmm. And I know more about how to put together that puzzle. 
And I feel like these books might introduce people to the world or the environment and the atmosphere around them and hopefully make them respect it. But at the same time, in each of these natural disasters that I've covered, I have learned so much. It's just that it's taken me 20 years. I want the reader and these young people or whoever reads it to come away with the lessons I learned, but come away with them much quicker. Thank you for sharing that because I... I think you did a really good job at illustrating how destructive but beautiful a natural disaster like a tornado is. I've got that scene in my head where Helicity's on the mountaintop and you start to see the uh, tornado form. And it actually got me thinking like, I, I've never really been in a natural disaster event. Maybe there's been a bit of flooding up here, but I've never really experienced one. And I had the climate change lens on with more frequent disasters happening and then more ferocious ones. So with that, I started to think about how that affected us on an individual and family level. Did that occur to you? Did that connection come up for you at all like between climate change and how it affects a family and individual while writing this? Oh, yeah. I think that just like to get a stop sign at an intersection, unfortunately, mm. it takes an accident. And we know that analogy applies to a lot of things in our world. And I unfortunately get the front row seat at all of these accidents. And they're not accidents, they're natural disasters. But with more frequency or more severity and more impact to a higher population, we're starting to see them to the point where people can't deny that it's happening in front of them. And I think that that's, you know, combined with science that is concluded. And that's always the, the kind of humorous part to me is that people want to make it a debate about belief. And it's like, what? I have to think back about how long did it take for us to believe that cigarettes were linked mm -hmm. to lung cancer? And, and I, you know, that's, so once you move past that, you start to see, for example, I just did a story about Biscayne Bay in Miami and the impacts of a rising sea level, not just flooding streets like people think on a regular basis with a regular king tide because that happens on a bi-monthly basis at this point, but happening so much more often and impacting their water, their ability to have Biscayne Bay, which is like the jewel of Miami, they may be able to pump water out of the streets and do as much as they can to save the buildings and the people from flooding, but they're not going to be able to save the fresh water or the mm. mixed water around there. The way that we have manipulated our land everywhere globally, humans always think about what's right in front of them. And unfortunately, that manipulation and engineering of our world is only going to be challenged more and sometimes makes it worse. You know, you look at something like New Orleans, the Mississippi River Delta, where there was very short-sightedness in how they created. And now we're seeing the impacts, Houston and Harvey. You know, so it really just takes people seeing it. And I think they're starting to say, yeah, it's here. Norfolk, Virginia, I could keep going. You know, there are examples mm -hmm. after examples. And I think everyone is certainly living it. What I think I got out of your book that I couldn't get from watching a news report or reading an article about these natural disasters was that interaction on a family level, having that fear, having that shame, having the, the caring but resilient mother and the hardworking but angry father and, and the really optimistic brother and all these characters really trying their best to get through the challenge. And I thought that was, it, it just 
really helped me connect with, oh, that's what a tornado does. It does all these bigger things here, but it really affects families at that level. You know, I always think it's interesting that we always count deaths where like six people mm. were killed. Well, how many people were impacted forever? You know, I, when I covered my first big hurricane and that was Hurricane Katrina, and one of the people, after I had seen a hundred body bags lined up, I had seen all of these things in Gulfport, Mississippi that I had never been attached to before. I went down there as a meteorologist and kind of a science nerd wondering, ooh, I wonder what a 22 foot storm surge looks like, right? And then when I got there, I realized that it was about people. Oh my gosh, this impacted people, right? And and mm. through the days of, you know, I have a mic flag and a, a logo on my shirt so people think I'm some sort of official or know something. We knew nothing, just like everybody else, but they would come up to us. And one of the most poignant moments was when someone said, when is my check going to arrive? And I thought, wow. not only do you not have a house, you don't have a mailbox. There is no post office any longer. I actually don't think it will be for years that you're gonna get your check. You know what I'm saying? Like it, the impacts that the, the long standing weeks, months and years that go after a natural disaster are lost because you don't see the media reports because we couldn't be there for years on end. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't happen that way. Hurricane Michael that I was just in in the Florida Panhandle, a category five, the first since 1992. And I'm standing in the eye wall of this monster watching people's homes twist off their foundation, bob down the street and shred and all of the contents of them, right? You often see someone standing with someone's teddy bear or something where it's like, no, 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 no. This was at least the home that we watched shred right in front of us. That was someone's business on top of their home. Mm -hmm. So there were, they were seamstress and they had all of these bodices where they had the clothing on. And you just think about each individual part and each individual and how much that changes their life and their trajectory. Wow. Uh, you, you're at the front line of all these natural disasters. Have you thought about how your family and yourself, how you would respond in, in, in a situation like that? Yes. I think now two decades of being in that unique position of showing up when someone has lost everything, including a family member or whatever it ends up being. I have watched how human beings grieve and the emotions that they go through I don't know that I, I, I don't think I would do it perfectly because nobody can, um, but I think that I'm ready and I respect and take everything that we have with such gratitude. After every storm, I come back and I'm like, I look at my shoelaces and I'm grateful. Mm -hmm. So that's something that these natural disasters and having the proximity to them has really helped me do. But as far as preparation goes, you know, I live north of New York City where in general, we have very mild and pretty uneventful weather. However, we've had one tropical storm over the summer. We had two of them actually, but one of them, we had 75 mile per hour winds in our backyard. My husband, who is a man from Manhattan, he's never been a storm chaser like me. He could not believe we were out of power for five days. And it actually was more than five, it was five to 10 days. And for the tri-state, for one of the most populated areas in the United States to have that type of a lengthy response to what was just a kind of a minimal tropical storm. 
that tells you something. We haven't seen it on that scale, right? And so the power companies even here were like, wait, whoa, 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 how do we do this quick enough? Um, not to say that 10 days without power, because I grew up in a place where we lost power for a week regularly. So to me, I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> this is <laughs> how normal. Power goes up. <laughs> Yeah, but realizing that now we're seeing maybe a, a broader impact from a storm like that, where it is much tougher for something like a utility to come back up. And you think about someone who doesn't have a generator attached to their refrigerator and who doesn't have a job that can throw out an entire refrigerator worth of food because their budget doesn't allow that. And the societal impacts of even something as simple as that a really minimal tropical storm, that sits with me pretty heavily. At the same time, do I think that we could get a damaging wind event here of 100 mile per hour gusts? Yeah, I think that could happen as things become more severe, for sure. So I'm, I'm always ready. And as much as I used to make fun of my mom, and I think in part why I'm really interested in the weather is because she used to, every gust of wind, down in the basement, everybody in the basement. <laughs> I love that. That's such a wake up call. I'm just hearing that like, wow, all these wake up calls happening and, and yet like myself and a lot of people around the world uh, left with the anxiety that it's going to happen and that stress, that bubbling stress. What do you, what advice would you give to people in that position that have the stress and anxiety that climate change is going to happen and we can't do anything about it? Well, see, I think we can. And that, I guess that's where the power and the control and on our part comes. I do a segment called It's Not Too Late, uh, because I genuinely believe that. Even in Biscayne Bay, where I was telling the story about the pollution becoming so horrible that they've really gotten past the tipping point. You hear that word tipping point. That's one of those places where environmentally we've done it. We have pushed it to its brink. It's beyond. We saw one of the largest fish kills ever. But there are places like Tampa Bay, right across the state of Florida, that even though it took 40 years, they got their bay back. When there's a will, there's a way, right? On a very macro scale, we can do that. And we all have the ability to. I think thinking beyond the obvious things, I think a lot about our green spaces. You know, many people might not have a large yard, but what is in your yard? You know, are you societally, for some reason, we fell in love with grass. And I don't know how it is where you are, but we really just love green lawns over here. And grass doesn't really do a lot for us. So like actually thinking about your land and what in your immediate surroundings you can change. Like I'm going to try to make grass not cool anymore, not in fashion, <laughs> because I think that we can as simply as changing the types of trees, adding more trees, giving our ground natural ground cover. You know, this time of year, there's the people are blowing the leaves everywhere. And I'm like, you realize like those leaves are supposed to stay there. They're part mm -hmm. of the, the natural ground cover and the natural circle of what the, the soil is meant to do. We're stripping it just like we do in our agriculture. And then that idea of what we're doing on the individual level can start growing into who we are as consumers. And I am constantly looking for farms that don't till. You want to talk about reducing a large amount of carbon output in our world. It's not just about airplanes and car exhaust. It is a lot about how we do monoculture and agriculture. So it's like thinking and just educating yourself on what else you can do as a consumer and what you can do in your immediate surroundings. And I think that's where you start to have the power because that adds up. 
I think about something as simple as my husband, again, he's such a city guy and he always calls me, he's like, you're such a farm girl. You know, I, I started a compost and he's like, ew. And I said, no, it's not you. <laughs> we are saving methane gas from when you, you know, when you just throw your banana peel in the garbage and it mixes with all the other actual trash, you are not only adding to the landfill, but making the decomposition of that banana peel, not even close to as fruitful for the earth as it could be. It hurts it rather than benefits it. Whereas when you're doing it, you can change the anaerobic versus aerobic process. So it's, it's kind of like very scientific, but it's so easy, right? It's like, go back to basics. So now he's found himself, he's throwing apples in the backyard. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You have to put it in the pile. <laughs> chucking them off the deck. Has he converted yet? Because we get so many of those stories with a, a husband or a wife person usually going, oh no, that, that's gross. And after a couple of weeks, like, oh, I want to feed the worms. The worms are looking happy. Yeah. Well, he does, he still won't do it. He's still not. <laughs> but he has, I put a very simple couple of places outside and inside where he can put his apple cores and the things that make the most sense to him. So it's like a start of, of how we're doing it. And it's strange because I grew up like that. I'm so lucky mm-hmm. that the first house that my parents built together, they built to be off the grid. We had geothermal heat, wood burning fire. Uh, My dad grew up in the Netherlands. So I think he just thought differently and maybe a little bit more European, but he also is like, I'm not paying somebody for my heat. You know, he's extremely frugal. So part that kind of worked with it. But even when my parents divorced, my mom married a man who loved homesteading and Mm -hmm. having our own chickens, goats, being able to sustain ourselves as much as possible on the land around us. And I think when I went to college, it was so jarring to see that the rest of the world didn't do this. I knew it from like my friends' houses or sleepovers a little bit, but really when I went to college to watch how waste was different one state away from where I grew up, how Mm. recycling was not championed like it was in my hometown, how it just I think I was living in such a utopia of green <laughs> and did then that, I got like thrown into the real world. That's, did that change anything for your mental health? Because you often think about that connecting with nature in the garden or composting mm-hmm. can really help physically mm-hmm. with a lot of the stresses just, just by looking at greenery and nature and just connecting in with those natural cycles. Oh, I mean, I will tell you, first of all, starting at the university was hard enough because it's just a completely different, you know, atmosphere that you're in. But I do think that probably the most impact was the food. I started getting very sick, like actually physically sick and also mentally ill within the next year or two. And I think that there's no chance there wasn't a connection between that. I was going from, you know, eating mostly from our small farm or really good food from our local farmer's markets or even the grocery. We were very careful, I think, with what we bought. And I had such privilege to be able to live like that. And then when I went to college, I think I was just exposed and introduced to much more complex carbohydrates and (laughs) many more processed foods that did not have any connection to land whatsoever. And especially with dairy, I got so sick and I was never allergic to dairy when it was our dairy, but I was suddenly very ill. So I think that that has many, many layers of implication, yes, on what it does to eventually your mental health, because then the more disconnected you come from what you're eating or what you're living on and 
the land of, again, you know, I look around me and like grass kind of grosses me out. I don't know. <laughs> I, it's, I'm like, it's true. It's true. It's, it's what you've been brought up with in some ways, isn't it? Because that's yeah. normal to you. Like that's, oh, it might be more convenient for you, but if you, if you haven't seen something else that it's, it's hard for you to, to see what could be. Yeah. And I, and I guess I look at my backyard and I think, oh, we should line that with raspberries. That would be a mm-hmm. beautiful cover from the neighbors, but also produce raspberries. You know, like how is this not just the way that we think? I don't, I think that people found themselves growing up and disconnected and they don't know how to connect. So with my husband, he's a wonderful person to bring me back to where most people are so that I don't get too judgy and don't get too, you know, and he's usually on board because most of these things are financially beneficial and he sees that and he also knows how passionate I am and he loves me. And so the end, it's like, okay, I'll put worms in our backyard in a hole because I know that that means a lot to you and I'll, I'll figure this out. We'll get there. In the meantime, he's going to have fun chucking his apple and laughing at me. And, I'm, and he's like, the birds eat it. <laughs> the dog's getting sick. <laughs> I, I want to give him a couple months. And once he eats a juicy cat from there, I think that's the motivation where people start to connect the dots between composting, healthy soil. Ooh, delicious salad. I can pick from my backyard or healthy herbs. You know what I'm so proud of, though? For the whole time we've been married, I've never seen someone so in love with paper towel. And I, I don't get it. I've never understood it. Like, we never had paper towel before, so why do we need paper towel? So now I found this company that, puts a, like a microfiber on a roll and you rewash and it just it's the it's the habit of taking the paper towel versus a towel that he likes is what i realized and he's he's like a total convert he's in we haven't bought paper towel in a year <laughs> That's, and that fits in with his lifestyle and that it doesn't, fits his doesn't life, make yeah, it, and it fits any his harder. habit it's just how he grew up. It's just a different product coming off the roll. So for the first five years of our marriage, I didn't realize that it was the habit. I thought he really mm-hmm. didn't like the way that it cleaned. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's the same thing. I had done the bamboo ones that were just kind of like folded up. I had done a couple of different types that we now use for cleaning and stuff. But this, this changed it. And I think that's what I'm talking about when you say making these things fashionable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that will make a shift in society. And I don't know why we got away from it in the first place, aside from people thought it was convenient or late, but those like the microfiber towels are just as easy as paper towel. There is no difference. And I think that's also why it fits for him. Cause he's like, I don't have to change anything. You know, you brought up something important there that I always think about, which is, is the habitual change. And for me, that seems the fundamental, the hardest part to any of these um, greener, more sustainable ways of living. And there's a quote that you mentioned, which is, you have to be honest with yourself in order to be honest with others. And I think you do that on, on climate change. Certainly, you're doing that with composting. You're doing that with your food. Like, Can you expand on that a little bit more, being honest with yourself? Yeah. I mean, my first book, the natural disaster book, that's where I really got to a point of healing. And not that I hadn't, I, I, to kind of make it a short, long story, I had dealt with a lot of mental health issues from college on and had had a couple of suicide attempts. And I had had a very 
up and down, but mostly down personal slash mental health journey while my career was always skyrocketing and never had a dip. Right. And so when I finally got to a point where my career meant so much to me that I knew that I was going to be potentially losing it because of what I was doing in my personal life and my lack of attention to my mental health, that's when I was finally honest with myself. That honesty with myself and then the transparency with others, which went from checking myself into a mental health hospital, paying attention and getting the real help that I needed in my mental health, that started paying back 20-fold when I started realizing that that honesty with myself could be applied to everything. And the transparency that I live with could be applied to everything, something as simple as composting. Sharing that and the way that I have evolved my thinking and and the way that I live, when I do think that it's helpful, I'm not perfect. I do a lot of things wrong. And And I also am transparent about those things. But that's what that book allowed me to do, was it allowed me to say, Hi, I'm Ginger. I am so far from perfect. However, here are the things that I've learned since I got a lot of help. And I don't care if you don't think I'm perfect, but I want you to hear these other things because this may help you. And that interaction of the transparency with myself and the honesty with myself then gave me a connection to other people that I was never able to have before because I always had some sort of blockade. I always had some sort of fence or a wall up that wasn't allowing me to actually connect or make a difference. And I think that that book and that quote right there is is what made a difference in every part of my career, personal life. And then everything really truly like sounds really cliche, but it started falling into place. <laughs> so no, that's that's not cliche at all. I think that's so important. You have the foundation there and everything else is built on top of that. It's like with healthy soils, you get the foundation right, you have amazing plants above it. Yeah, oh. and, that, and that is a good analogy. And the other thing, you know, I was diagnosed with narcolepsy around that same time that I was going to college and getting bad food, basically. Everything started falling apart because I wasn't giving attention. We all pay however many hundreds or thousands of dollars to make our bodies look good. We don't pay that hundreds or thousands of dollars to make our mind work good, work well. And so Mm -hmm. when I started shifting that, you're right, the mind and your sleep and the things that are sometimes um, looked at as kind of like, those things need to be the foundation. And then you build from there and it's the rest of it like your physical health and what your physical body looks like, I think falls even better because you've given it that great base. I'm obsessed with my sleep right now. That's like one of those things that I'm, I got one of those rings. I'm looking at every, and those, those metrics are kind of like how our metrics of our world work and our carbon outputs. It all matters. When I have like a, a little glass of tequila, that changes my resting heart rate. And I don't, you know, now I can't even like shove it off. Like, oh, that's not going to impact me. No, it does. <laughs> and got it's the right data there. Yeah. Right. Uh, and it doesn't make it wrong that I have it once in a while, but it definitely mm-hmm. makes me think about it. And I think that's the other thing that I always want to be without preaching. I think being able to educate and showcase the transparency of the paper towel, that's going to mm-hmm. mean something, you know, it on top really of does. It really yeah. does. I guess by you having these conversations and just changing the narrative a little bit with, oh, I want to put raspberries in my backyard instead of hedges. Like that may not have even occurred to somebody before. And it's just, uh, well, that makes sense. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm going to 
compost my apple instead of throwing it outside. It's like, <laughs> oh, wow, you can do that? So I think it's, yeah, I just want to commemorate you and say thank you for really having these conversations out there, which probably come off really simple to you because you grew up in an environment where you, you did a lot of this stuff, but it's, mm -hmm. it, it really makes, it makes a difference. With the composting, I have to say, even with my mom and my stepfather, because I took a picture of their compost pile, which is like 25 years later, it's giant, right? And, <laughs> and Wait, they, have they been adding to the pile for 25 years? I mean, they take soil out, but, but it's just <laughs> it's always been big because they just have awesome. a lot of grass and, you know, whatever it is that they, they do leaves and they put everything that they, the yard waste even. And the, the amount of tomatoes, pumpkins, and squash that try to grow out of that every year. I was asking my stepfather, I'm like, you know, when I posted about composting, people started to ask me questions that I never once thought about because ours just sat there in a pile and he truly, he barely even pitchforked it. Like it just worked perfectly naturally sitting in a pile sitting upright but they were last like here they were like well you can't do that in the winter it's going to freeze and i'm like what are you talking about it creates its own heat you know like mm -hmm. there are a lot of myths and a lot of misnomers that i think that just doing it and having the connection with people that starts to inspire them to say oh i can do it oh there are bear proof options mm -hmm. there there's always an excuse but there's always an answer to the excuse, I think, in most of these cases. And so that's what, with the composting, what I learned too, just even with that winter one, they're like, oh, it gets too cold here. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's too cold to compost. That's a really good point. I think we're so uh, used to just finding the answer on, on the internet these days that we forget that just experiencing it and just using simple common sense. Like I always just think about a worm. Like, is, a, is your worm going to be happy in that compost system? Does it have enough food? Does it have enough air? Does it have enough water? Is it too cold or too hot for them? If these answers don't fit in with what makes a worm happy, then that compost system might not work. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty common sense when you think about it, but I'm a bit of a worm nerd, so <laughs> <laughs> I might not be the best person. I spend a lot of time thinking about it, but I, I totally agree. I, it can be so much easier if you just go out there and experience it and, and figure it out and it's what's the worst that could happen yeah nothing and my boys that's that's been you know my boys are two and four and they love feeding the worms there's nothing better for a little boy <sighs> or a little child than to get in the dirt and to be able to play and see old food and like they love when i aerate it they love like when i pull it up so that they can see all the worms in the bottom they love that feeling what do so they love about it? What is the, what's the connection there? I think it's that, especially my four-year-old is pretty into, you know, capturing bugs and learning what they eat. And if, if one stink bug would eat a ladybug or would the ladybug eat a stink bug or like he loves like kind of the fight and the survival of a bug or a worm. And then with a worm and, and he's moving on now, he's kind of getting past bugs and worms he wants to find a lizard and keep it in his room for a little bit. And then we have to have the conversation about, well, is that, <laughs> you can't take something from outside and bring it inside, but he likes the idea of caring for it like a pet. So the worms to him are kind of like a distant pet. That he gets <laughs> check in him. But he, like he told me the other day, we have two dogs, by the way, we adopted two mm -hmm. dogs in the last seven months. And he told me we don't have enough animals and he really needs a mouse, a fish and a gerbil. And I was like, okay, 
well, <laughs> got to take it easy. Why don't we start with maybe bringing a couple of the worms in to watch them for a while? <laughs> you know, it'd be a cool experiment getting a worm egg and then hatching it and seeing oh, about yeah. seven, ten little worms that pop out of it, little cocoon. And that's if you could see that at a magnifying oh. glass, that's a pretty cool science experiment. That's a good idea because he's he's very into that too. And even so much, I was down doing one of the hurricanes and they had a fake alligator that pops out of an egg that you hatch for two days. And he loved that process. I don't even know what it's made out of, honestly. It's gross. It's like a very <laughs> slimy type of fake alligator, but it keeps growing in the water. It's been weeks and he just checks on it. every. It's a fake pet, but he loves uh-huh. like the process of it. Yeah. Of it busting out of the egg and naming it doing all that so maybe that's right oh wow well thank you so much Ginger. i love how this conversation has <laughs> grown from chasing helicity to climate change and now we're on composting and worms and alligator oh, eggs wow. just a natural <laughs> transition Very thanks for listening to this episode of the sub podcast remember to share this episode with any curious composters you know if you enjoyed what we talked about today if you have any questions please reach out to us at hello at subpod.com. We'd love to include your questions in our episodes and give them the answers they really deserve. That's all for today, so we'll see you next episode.